Chapter 2 of Frostiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Snow. Through the hushed air the whitening shower descends, at first thin wavering, till at last the flakes fall broad and wide and fast, dimming the day with a continual snow. Thompson. Snow is formed by the freezing of the vapours in the atmosphere. The snow we receive may, properly enough, be ascribed to the coldness of the atmosphere through which it falls. When the atmosphere is warm enough to dissolve the snow before it arrives to us, we call it rain. If it preserve itself undissolved, it makes what we call snow. It differs from the particles of hoar-frost in being crystallized, as it were, which they are not. It appears on the examination of a flake of snow by a magnifying glass, when the whole of it will seem composed of fine shining specula, or points, diverging like rays from a centre. As the flakes fall down through the atmosphere, they are continually joined by more of these radiated specula, and thus increase in bulk like the drops of rain or hailstones. Dr. Grew, in a discourse on the nature of snow, observes that many parts of it are of a regular figure, for the most part so many little rowels or stars of six points, and are as perfect and transparent ice as any we see on a pond. Upon each of these points are other collateral points, set at the same angles as the main points themselves, among which there are diverse points, some regular and others irregular, which are chiefly broken points and fragments of the regular ones. Others also, by various winds, seem to have been thawed and frozen again into irregular clusters, so that it seems as if the whole body of snow were an infinite mass of icicles irregularly figured, that is, a cloud of vapours being gathered into drops, those drops forthwith descend, and in their descent, meeting with a freezing air as they pass through a colder region, each drop is immediately frozen into an icicle, shooting itself forth into several points. But these, still continuing their descent and meeting with some intermitting gales of warmer air, or in their continual waftage to and fro, touching upon each other, are a little thawed, blunted, and frozen into clusters, or entangled so as to fall down in what we call flakes. According to Signor Beccaria, clouds of snow differ in nothing from clouds of rain, but in the circumstances of cold that freezes them. Both the regular diffusion of snow and the irregularity of the structure of its parts, particularly some figures of snow or hail, which he calls rosette, and which fall about Turin, show the clouds of snow to be acted upon by some uniform cause like electricity. He even endeavours, very particularly, to show in what manner certain configurations of snow are made by the uniform action of electricity. He was confirmed in his reasonings on this subject by observing that his apparatus never failed to be electrified by snow as well as by rain, and he adds that a more intense electricity unites the particles of hail more closely than the more moderate electricity does those of snow. Snow, although it seems to be soft, is really hard because it is true ice. It seems soft because, at the first touch of the finger upon its sharp edges or points, they melt, otherwise they would pierce the finger like so many lancets. The lightness of snow, although it is firm ice, is owing to the excess of its surface, in comparison to the matter contained under it. And thus gold, the most ponderous of all bodies, when beaten into leaves, will ride upon the least breath of air. The whiteness of snow is owing to the small particles into which it is divided, for ice, when pounded, will become equally white. The beauties of snow have been abundantly illustrated by poets, both ancient and modern, but what can be more minutely circumstantial or more elegantly accurate than the following description of snow from our own admirable poet of the seasons? The keener tempests rise, and, foaming done, from all the livid east or piercing north, thick clouds ascend, in whose capacious womb 
a vapory deluge lies to snow congealed. Heavy they roll their fleecy world along, and the sky saddens with the gathered storm. The cherished fields put on their winter robe of purest white, tis brightness all save where the new snow melts. Along the mazy current, lo, the woods bow their hoary head, and ere the languid sun, faint from the west, emits his evening ray. Earth's universal face, deep hid and chill, is one wide dazzling waste that buries wide the works of man. The same author has beautifully described the effects which the inclemency of the season has upon animals, and particularly the feathered tribes, while the snow is upon the ground. Drooping the labourer ox stands covered over with snow, and then demands the fruit of all his toil. The fowls of heaven, tamed by the cruel season, crowd around the winnowing store and claim the little boon which providence assigns them. One alone, the red-breast, sacred to the household gods, in joyless fields and thorny thickets, leaves his shivering mates and pays to trusted man his annual visit. Half afraid, he first against the window beats, then brisk alights on the warm hearth, then, hopping o'er the floor, eyes all the smiling family askance, and pecks and starts and wonders where he is, till more familiar grown the table-crumbs attract his slender feet. The foodless wilds pour forth their brown inhabitants. The hare, though timorous of heart and hard beset by death in various form, dark snares and dogs, and more unpitying men the garden seeks, urged on by fearless want. The bleating kind eye the bleak heaven, and next the glistening earth with looks of dumb despair, then sad, dispersed, dig for the wintered herb through heaps of snow. Uses of Snow we are not to consider snow merely as a curious and beautiful phenomenon. The great dispenser of universal bounty has so ordered it that it is eminently subservient, as well as all the works of creation, to his benevolent designs. Were we to judge from appearances only, we might imagine that so far from being useful to the earth, the cold humidity of snow would be detrimental to vegetation, but the experience of all ages asserts the contrary. Snow, particularly in those northern regions where the ground is covered with it for several months, fructifies the earth by guarding the corn, or other vegetables, from the intenser cold of the air, and especially from the cold-piercing winds. It has been a vulgar opinion, very generally received, that snow fertilizes the land on which it falls more than rain, in consequence of the nitrous salts which it is supposed to acquire by freezing. But it appears from the experiments of Margraff in the year 1751, that the chemical difference between rain and snow water is exceedingly small, and that the latter, however, is somewhat less nitrous, and contains a somewhat less proportion of earth than the former. But neither of them contain either earth or any kind of salt in any quantity which can be sensibly efficacious in promoting vegetation. Allowing, therefore, that nitre is a fertilizer of lands, which many are, upon good grounds, disposed utterly to deny, yet so very small is the quantity of it contained in snow, that it cannot be supposed to promote the vegetation of plants upon which the snow has fallen. The peculiar agency of snow as a fertilizer in preference to rain may, without recurring to nitrous salts supposed to be contained in it, be rationally ascribed to its furnishing a covering to the roots of vegetables, by which they are guarded from the influence of the atmospherical cold, and the internal heat of the earth is prevented from escaping. And hence, Budinus, in his Theatrum Naturae, observes that the psalmist compares snow to wool, rather on account of the warmth it affords to vegetables in the cold of winter, as woolen garments do to men, than of its fleecy resemblance. Snow may also fertilize the earth, agreeably to the hypothesis of those who make oil the food of plants, by means of the oily particles which it contains. 
Besides, snow, in melting, moistens and pulverizes the soil, which has been bound up by the frost, and, as its water has a tendency to putrefaction, it seems, on many accounts, without admitting it to contain any nitre, to be admirably fitted to promote vegetation. Another reason of the usefulness of snow has been suggested by Mr. Parks. Fur and down afford warm clothing in consequence of the air they enfold within them, atmospheric air being a non-conductor of heat. Hence it is that the carpet which covers the earth in winter is spread out by nature with so light a hand that it might hold an abundance of atmospheric air within its interstices to preserve the warmth of those innumerable tribes of vegetables which it is destined to protect. Artificial Snow An artificial snow has been made by the following experiment. A tall file of aquafortis being placed in the fire till it is warm, and filings of pure silver a few at a time being put into it. After a brisk ebullition, the silver will dissolve slowly, the file being then placed in a cold window. As it cools, the silver particles will shoot into crystals, several of which running together will form a flake, resembling snow, and descend to the bottom of the file. While they are descending, they represent perfectly a shower of silver snow, and the flakes will lie one upon another at the bottom, like real snow upon the ground. In a word, a shower of snow, although so common with us and therefore so little regarded, is in itself a most beautiful spectacle, and is considered by the natives of southern climes on their arrival here as the most extraordinary and amazing phenomenon of nature. Snow Slips It often happens that when snow has long been accumulated on the tops and on the sides of mountains, it is borne down the precipice either by means of tempests or its own melting. At first, when loosened, the volume in motion is but small, and gathers as it continues to roll, and by the time it has reached the habitable parts of the mountain, is generally grown of enormous bulk. Wherever it rolls, it levels all things in its way, or buries them in unavoidable destruction. Instead of rolling, it sometimes is found to slide along from the top, yet even thus it is generally as fatal as before. Nevertheless, an instance has been cited, sometime since, of a small family in Germany that lived for above a fortnight beneath one of these snowslips. Although they were buried during that whole time in utter darkness and under a bed of some hundred feet deep, yet they were luckily taken out alive, the weight of the snow being supported by a beam that kept up the roof, and nourishment being supplied them by the milk of an ass that was buried under the same ruin. Account of a woman buried in the snow for eight days. A well-authenticated anecdote of a woman surviving nearly eight days buried in the snow without food occurred near Impington in Cambridgeshire and is related by Mr. Oakes, the surgeon who attended her, in the Annals of Medicine for the year 1799. Elizabeth Woodcock, aged 42, of a slender, delicate make, on her return from Cambridge on the evening of the 2nd of February, being exhausted with running after her horse which had started from her, and becoming numbed in the hands and feet, sat down on the ground. At that time a small quantity of snow had but drifted near her, but it began to accumulate very rapidly, and when Chesterton Bells had rung at eight o'clock, she was completely enclosed and penned in by it. To the best of her recollection, she slept very little during the first night. On the morning of the third, observing before her a circular hole in the snow about two feet in length and half a foot in diameter, running obliquely upwards and closed with a thin covering of ice or snow, she broke off a branch of a bush that was close to her, and with it thrust her handkerchief through the hole as a signal of distress. In consequence of the external air being admitted, she felt herself very cold. On the second morning of her imprisonment, the hole was again closed up, and continued so till the third day, after which time it remained open. She heard distinctly the ringing of the village bells, noises on the highway, 
and even the conversation of some gypsies who passed near her, but could not make herself heard. She easily distinguished day and night, and could even read an almanac she took from her pocket. The sensation of hunger ceased almost entirely after the first day. Thirst was throughout her predominant feeling, and this she had the plentiful means of allaying by sucking the surrounding snow. She felt no gratification from the use of her snuff. On Friday the 8th, when a thaw took place, she felt uncommonly faint and languid, and her clothes were wet quite through by the melted snow. The aperture becoming enlarged, she attempted in vain to disengage herself from her perilous situation. On Sunday the 10th, a little after midday, she was discovered. A piece of biscuit and a small quantity of brandy were given her, from which she found herself greatly recruited, but she was so much exhausted that, on being lifted into the chaise, she fainted. Mr. Oakes saw her that day on her way home. He found her hands and arms sodden, but not very cold, and her pulse did not indicate the great debility which might have been expected. Her legs were cold, and her feet in a great measure mortified. She was directed to be put into bed without delay, and to take some weak broth occasionally, but no strong liquors, and not to be brought near the fire. Next day she was affected with symptoms of fever. Her pulse was rising, her face was flushed, and her breathing short, occasioned, probably, by having taken too much food, and being incommoded by the crowd of visitors. Her feet were also in a complete state of mortification, her ankles cold and benumbed, and the integuments puffy. Cloths wetted with brandy were applied to her feet. Some antifebrile remedies and a little opium were given her. The mortification, however, proceeded, and on the 17th of March all the toes were removed, and the bones of the heels were bare in many parts. On the 17th of April, the date of the last report, her appetite was becoming tolerably good, and her health was improving. The Hot Bath and Snow Bath Almost all the Finnish peasants have a small house built on purpose for a bath. It consists of only one small chamber, in the innermost part of which are placed a number of stones, which are heated by fire until they become red. On these stones, thus heated, water is thrown, until the company within be involved in a thick cloud of vapour. In this innermost part, the chamber is formed into two stories for the accommodation of a greater number of persons within that small compass, and, it being the nature of heat and vapour to ascend, the second story is, of course, the hottest. Men and women use the bath promiscuously, without any concealment of dress, or being in the least influenced by any emotions of attachment. If, however, a stranger open the door and come on the bathers by surprise, the women are not a little startled at his appearance, for besides his person he introduces along with him, by opening the door, a great quantity of light, which discovers at once to the view their situation as well as forms. Without such an accident they remain, if not in total darkness, yet in great obscurity, as there is no other window besides a small hole, nor any light but what enters in through some chink in the roof of the house, or the crevices between the pieces of wood of which it is constructed. I often amused myself, says a Cherby, with surprising the bathers in this manner, and I once or twice tried to go in and join the assembly, but the heat was so excessive that I could not breathe, and in the space of a minute at most, I verily believe, must have been suffocated. I sometimes stepped in for a moment just to leave my thermometer in some proper place, and immediately went out again, where I would remain for a quarter of an hour or ten minutes, and then enter again and fetch the instrument to ascertain the degree of heat. My astonishment was so great that I could scarcely believe my senses when I found that these people remained together and amused themselves for the space of half an hour, and sometimes a whole hour in the same chamber, heated to the seventieth or seventy-fifth degree of Celsius. The thermometer, in contact with those vapours, became sometimes so hot that I could scarcely hold it in my hands. 
The Finlanders, all the while they are in this hot bath, continue to rub themselves and lash every part of their bodies with switches formed of twigs of the birch tree. In ten minutes they become as red as raw flesh, and have altogether a very frightful appearance. In the winter season they frequently go out of the bath, naked as they are, to roll themselves in the snow, when the cold is at even twenty and thirty degrees below zero. I speak always of the thermometer of a hundred degrees by Celsius. They will sometimes come out still naked and converse together, or with anyone near them in the open air. If travellers happen to pass by while the peasants of any hamlet or little village are in the bath, and their assistance is needed, they will leave the bath and assist in yoking and unyoking and fetching provender for the horses or in anything else without any sort of covering whatever, while the passenger sits shivering with cold though wrapped up in a good sound wolf's skin. There is nothing more wonderful than the extremities which man is capable of enduring through the power of habit. The Finnish peasants pass thus instantaneously from an atmosphere of 70 degrees of heat to one of 30 degrees of cold, a transition of 100 degrees, which is the same thing as going out of boiling into freezing water. And what is more astonishing, without the least inconvenience, while other people are very sensibly affected by a variation of but 5 degrees, and in danger of being afflicted with rheumatism by the most trifling wind that blows, those peasants assure you that without the hot vapour baths they could not sustain as they do during the whole day their various labours. By the bath, they tell you, their strength is recruited as much as by rest and sleep. The heat of the vapour mollifies to such a degree their skin, that the men easily shave themselves with wretched razors and without soap. Had the immortal Shakespeare known of a people who could thus have pleasure in such a quick transition from excessive heat to the severest cold, his knowledge might have been increased, but his creative fancy could not have been assisted. Oh, who can hold a fire in his hand? by thinking of the frosty Caucasus, or wallow naked in December snow by thinking on fantastic summer's heat. Thompson's Description of a Man Lost in the Snow As thus the snows arise, and foul and fierce, all winter drives along the darkened air. In his own loose revolving fields the swain, disastered stands, sees other hills ascend of unknown joyless brow, and other scenes of horrid prospect shag the trackless plain nor finds the river nor the forest hid, beneath the formless wild, but wanders on, from hill to dale, still more and more astray, impatient flouncing through the drifted heaps, stung with the thoughts of home, the thoughts of home, rush on his nerves and call their vigour forth, in many a vain attempt, how sinks his soul, what black despair, what horror fills his heart, when for the dusky spot which fancy feigned, his tufty cottage rising through the snow, he meets the roughness of the middle waste, far from the track and blessed abode of man, while round him night restless closes fast, and every tempest howling o'er his head renders the savage wilderness more wild than throng the busy shapes into his mind of covered pits unfathomably deep. A dire descent beyond the power of frost, of faithless bogs, of precipices huge, smoothed up with snow, and what is land unknown, what water of the still-frozen spring, in the loose marsh or solitary lake, where the fresh fountain from the bottom boils. These check his fearful steps, and down he sinks beneath the shelter of the shapeless drift, thinking o'er the bitterness of death, mixed with the tender anguish nature shoots through the wrung bosom of the dying man, his wife, his children, and his friends unseen. In vain for him the officious wife prepares, the fire fair blazing and the vestment warm, in vain his little children peeping out into the mingling storm demand their sire with tears of artless innocence alas nor wife nor children more shall he behold nor friends nor sacred home 
On every nerve the deadly winter seizes, shuts up sense, and o'er his inmost vitals creeping cold, lays him along the snows, a stiffened corpse, stretched out and bleaching in the northern blast. End of chapter 2 Recording by Lewis Fletcher